I think I uh, forgot to introduce myself when I did the welcome this morning, but I'm, I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the ministers here, and I get to work primarily with our uh, middle school and high school students. And I just need to say, when I have the chance to be up in front of everyone, that it is, man, it is an honor and it is awesome. Um, our students, your children, are really incredible. And it's so cool to, to walk alongside them as they're, I mean, they're like figuring out what it means to follow Jesus. And they're making real sacrifices to do that. And they're wrestling with hard things. And it's just wonderful. And so I just want to tell you, if, if you don't know our students, haven't got to spend time with them, they really are awesome. Um, and they're really serious about pursuing Jesus. And I would encourage you to, if you don't know them, get to, get to know them, spend some time with them. They're really fantastic. Um, now, I, I want to bring up a picture, okay? I want to see if you know what this is. Somebody know what this is? Yeah, you can get your kicks on it. It's, uh, it's Route 66, all right? This is Route 66. It's this historic road that started up in Chicago, and it would take you all the way down to Santa Monica, California. Now, it has since been decommissioned, but there are all these efforts to preserve the route and all the little stops along the way because so many strange sights and attractions had popped up along Route 66. You can see the Gemini Giant Muffler Man in Wilmington, Illinois. I know it's on your bucket list, so now you know how to go see it. Um, some of them are, are more well-known, right? You could go up to the top of the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, Missouri. And there's meteor craters, and there's ghost towns, and all manner of little diners and shops as you go all the way down to Santa Monica Pier. And along the way, you will pass through Amarillo, Texas, and you will see this right here. Cadillac Ranch. Cadillac Ranch. It is a row of 10 Cadillacs buried face down in the dirt. And they start with the, the 1949 Club Sedan, to, and they go all the way through to the 1963 Sedan DeVille. And, and perhaps it was originally a piece of art showcasing the classic fins of the Cadillacs of that time and how they change over the years. But now, these cars, they've been in the ground way longer than they were ever on the roads. And you can see they're a little worse for wear, right? I mean, their iconic fins have been ripped off. They're covered in graffiti. It's even encouraged. Like, they tell people, yes, go tag the, the Cadillacs, right? Whatever you want on there. And some people, they've come to represent something bigger. They're, they're this monument to America's hopes and dreams, to, to our art and commerce, to our fame, and to the folly of all those things as well. It's a reminder of how few things really last. And Cadillac Ranch, it got me interested in this idea of strange monuments. So I kind of went pokey around, and I found a few I want to share with you this morning. This next one, this is the Bull Weevil Monument. All right, the Bull Weevil Monument. This is in Enterprise, Alabama. And yes, it is a statue of a woman holding up a bull weevil. Okay, um, it's weird, but it does commemorate something interesting. You see, in the early 1900s, the cotton crops there were decimated by bull weevil swarms. And so it forced the community there to diversify, to find other routes forward to survival. And so they feel like the, the bull weevil made them better, right? It pushed them out of their comfort zone. So they built a statue a monument to remember the bull weevil. And that's it. You can still go see it today. Now, the next one is Stranger. This is St. Wenceslaus riding a dead horse. The horse is upside down, <laughs> you can see. This is in Prague, 
And it's pretty weird. It's pretty weird. This is the same guy as Good King Wenceslas that you may be familiar with from the song. Um, and now the artist, the, the creator, has never come out and said exactly what it means. But it's pretty widely known that it's supposed to be a, kind of like a critique of the Czech leadership at the time. Okay. Uh, this next one, this is the Headington Shark. All right. This is in Oxford, England, and it's a shark bursting, I guess, into, into a house. <laughs> it looks like it's leaping straight inside. And I, I'm sure just by looking at this one, you can tell what it's about, that it's uh, concerned about nuclear power. Well, <laughs> it's not very obvious to me initially, but that, that is what it was created for. Um, it was created out of this concern regarding nuclear power, particularly when the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki and then the later accident at Chernobyl. Uh, it got the creator worried about the effects of nuclear power on our world, and so he created this. It's supposed to kind of express the sort of frustration and concern that I guess would make you tear a hole out of your roof and build a shark. Um, it's definitely striking and memorable, and I think people come and check it out pretty often. Now, this weekend, as we're looking at weird monuments, this weekend, our very own Barrett Kaufman was in Georgia. And I want to tell you why he was there, right? Um, we won't say that, but um, no, he was there for the UK-Georgia game. Um, and he was not far from another monument himself. Those are the Georgia Guidestones. Anybody familiar with these? I had never heard of these. These are pretty strange. These are right outside of Athens. Uh, it's, it's in Elbert County there in Georgia. They were built in 1980, and they had this really fascinating history. So in June of 1979, this guy comes along. Uh, he's using a pseudonym. He says his name is R.C. Christian. He approaches the Elberton Granite Company on behalf of a small group of loyal Americans, and he commissions the structure. Right? And he tells them the stones are going to function as like a compass and a calendar and a clock, and they should be able to withstand catastrophic events. Now, the, the guy, Joe Finley, who worked at the Granite Company at the time, he kind of thought that this dude was crazy. And so he tried to discourage him by providing a quote that was like three or four times higher than what it would cost to build this. To his surprise, the man, R.C. Christian, accepted the quote. And when they were arranging payment, he said that he represented a group which had been planning the, the guidestones for 20 years, and they wanted to remain anonymous. It's kind of eerie, right? It's a little creepy. Um, and written... On these guidestones, it gets a little weirder. Written on these guidestones are, are ten guidelines or principles, and they're repeated in eight different languages. And you may be able to see what they say from there. You can certainly go and look it up. But there's some weird stuff on here, right? I mean, one of them is like maintain humanity under 500 million people in perpetual balance with nature. One of them talks about guiding reproduction wisely, um, Uniting humanity with a living new language. Um, some of it is, is you know, balance personal rights with social duties and prize truth, beauty, and love. Um, so, so there's some things you might could say, okay, those are good ideas, but there are definitely some deeply concerning things on there too, like eugenics, right? Not a message we would probably want to jump behind, the Georgia Guidestones. And as you can imagine, um, with this mysterious man under a false name representing a mystery organization paying ludicrous amounts of money to build these, it's led to all sorts of speculation, conspiracy theories about what they were intended for, who was really behind them. 
And one interpretation, I don't have the answer, by the way, so you'll just be left in mystery as well. Uh, but one interpretation, one interpretation of these stones is that they were created as instructions to rebuild a devastated civilization. You know, they were commissioned in 1979 at the height of the Cold War. So maybe the intention by the people who, who wanted them built was they, they wanted to make this message to the possible survivors of nuclear World War III, how to, how to rebuild civilization. And this was their idea of how to do it. Maybe they thought that we would need it. And it's hard not to kind of wonder, right, when you, when you hear this story. Um, there's all the weird things about it, but also we just know no one builds a monument, especially an expensive monument like that, for no reason. There's a purpose behind these sort of undertakings, behind monuments. They remind us of something or they point us to, towards something. They give us some idea or value. And Paul, the Paul of the Bible, formerly Saul, Paul, he would agree. Now, he wouldn't agree with the Georgia Guidestones, certainly, but he would agree with the idea that monuments have a reason, they have a purpose, they have a direction, a message. In 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 1 through 3, he writes, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And Paul has this very strong idea of what our lives are. They're letters, they're memorials, they're monuments. They're seen and known and understood by everyone around us. We're, we're the Cadillacs in the desert, right? We're the sharks bursting into people's houses. But instead of the ambiguity of some of these monuments, our message is supposed to be unmistakable. Our lives are supposed to tell the whole world about what is really important, who really matters, where history is really headed. Our lives are monuments to who God is and what he cares about. And to Paul, this idea, it seems to go really deep. It runs deep into who he is and what he does. Throughout his letters, he frequently appeals not only to his message, but the way in which he shares it as evidence of its veracity, of its reliability. And this passage in 2 Corinthians 3, I think it illustrates it quite plainly, that a transformed heart in Paul's mind is the best proof of Christ's active presence. And, and so I, I got to share a little about this idea back in May. I'd like to continue looking at how Paul talks about his witness. You know, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, to follow his example as he follows Christ. And I want to look deep into what he says about his example and then I, I, I want to turn around and look at my own, right? And see what our lives, what our living monuments are telling the world about who God is. I, um, I came across a concerning statistic the other day. It was, it was from a devotional from Sky Jatani. He said this in it. Increasingly, researchers are not able to differentiate the behaviors and values of self-identified Christians from non-Christians with one exception what they buy. As total sales of religious products reach $7 billion annually, it seems God's people are constructing and expressing their identity through the consumption of Christ-branded products rather than through their practice of Christ-like love. And I, I hope that's wrong, right? I mean, that's, I really hope that that's not accurate. It's concerning if it is. 
And I hope we can show the world something better than alternate brand choices as Christians. So today we'll be in 1 Corinthians 9, which Gregory read for us earlier. Now, by the time we get to 1 Corinthians 9, a lot has happened in this letter to the Corinthians. The church in Corinth, it has a lot going on. And it's, it's not a lot like, uh, like trunk or treats and, and meat and meat, right? It's like all kinds of issues Paul is dealing with. So far in the book, he has talked about divisions. People are divided over which leaders they should follow, Cephas, Paul, Apollos. He's talked about lawsuits between believers. He's dealt with incest. He's dealt with married life and unmarried life. And in chapter 8, he gets to this issue of food sacrifice to idols. There's leftover meat that was part of idol worship. And the question is, is it okay to eat? And that's the question the Corinthians are asking. They're split. Some say yes, you can eat it. Some say no, you can't. Now, Paul, he does answer this pretty quickly. He says, yes, technically it is okay. Idols aren't real. They're meaningless. But that's not the real issue that Paul zeroes in on. Paul says that some people who eat food sacrificed to an idol, they're going to feel like they're participating in idolatry. And if by not eating, he can help them out, then he is happy to give that up. And there's something really unique as you read from chapter 8 to chapter 9. There's something that happens between the two chapters. It's not written in there, but it's right there between 8.13 and 9 verse 1. As Paul says, I'm willing to give this up for those who it's a problem for. Paul anticipates a reaction, and you can probably guess what it is. Well, why should I give up my right to eat food, sacrifice to idols, just because someone else doesn't understand? They're the one who has it wrong. Now, right, rights is an important word here, I think, because it kind of becomes the basis for all of chapter 9, this idea that we have certain things that we deserve, unalienable rights. They're they're part of our deep ideas about what is true. And Paul says, rights? You want to talk about rights, huh? And then in chapter 9, he starts to list some of his rights. I have the right to have the church supply my needs, food, drink, shelter, pay. I have the right to get married. And Paul says, it's true. These are my rights. And anyone in his situation would have the same rights. And it would be wrong for someone else to take those away from him. But Paul has chosen to give them up. He has surrendered his rights. It all culminates in verses 19 through 23 of chapter 9. Though I am free and belong to no one, I made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law them under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. All things to all people. That's what Paul says he has become. And today, with with the rest of our time, I want us to look at what Paul means by that. What he means when he says that he has become all things. What does a a witness like that look like? And next time I get to share, I want to look at what he means by all people. So today, all things. When When I think about becoming all things, I can't help but think about my son. My son is four years old, and he loves, 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 loves to pretend. 
I mean, we would spend all our time pretending to be different people if he had his way. We'd do sword fighting battles between Link and Ganon. We'd be saving people as Spider-Man. We'd be chased by Siren Head, which is a monster some kid at daycare told him about, and it's kind of terrifying, okay? <laughs> and by the way, this is an aside, but I've noticed that most fictional kids' characters, they have a cool guy and a cool girl, and then either the bad guy or the lame sidekick friend. That's going to be the rest of my life. Right? He's Catboy, I'm Gecko. He's Batman, I'm Robin. I'm forever either the bad guy or the lame sidekick friend. Anyway, the speed from which my son can swap from Link to Peter Pan to a cat to a Power Ranger, it's pretty amazing. He loves pretending, becoming someone else so much. Even when he was little, um, he had a very limited vocabulary. He would pretend to be someone else all the time. And sometimes at night, we would put him to bed... Um, and we'd walk away, and a little bit later, we'd suddenly hear him just bawling, like crying so hard. And we'd rush in, you know, what's wrong? And he'd say, I can't remember who I am. He had forgotten the name of whoever he was pretending to be, and he had lost it. He was so sad, so caught up in becoming someone else, but he couldn't remember their name. I mean, my son's idea of becoming someone else is to completely take on their persona, to add this other layer on top of himself. Paul's idea of becoming all things is different. And, and you can see it in the text. It's primarily about surrendering his rights, about giving up who he is, taking off, peeling away. He makes the scope of it clear in verse 19. He shows us how far he is willing to go, what he is willing to give up. Though I am free, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Paul's willing to give up his, his freedom. It's a total surrender of his personal privileges, of his social and religious rights. He explains this further in verses 20 through 21. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. To those not having the law, I became like them. These things, I mean, these, these wouldn't have been small matters to Paul. Judaism was Paul's past. It was his history. It was his traditions. It was his entire life up to this point. He had social standing within that system. No doubt he still had an appreciation uh, of his Jewish heritage, but he's willing to toss that aside if it gets in the way, if it's a barrier to someone hearing and experiencing the gospel. Meanwhile, the, the freedom that Paul had found from the law had been liberating for him. If you read the book of Romans, he'll tell you all about it, the rules, the regulations, the sacred days. It goes on and on. But in Jesus, Paul had experienced freedom from the law. But becoming all things meant he was willing to give that up as well. There's this passage in Acts, Acts chapter 21. Paul arrives in Jerusalem. The leaders of the church are pumped he's there. They're glad to see him. But there's a problem. You see, lots of Jewish people have become believers. But according to verse 20 of chapter 21 of Acts, they're still zealous for the law, these new uh, Jewish believers. And there are rumors about Paul regarding the law. And the rumor is Paul hates the law. Paul is not friendly to the law. He goes around telling everyone not to follow it. He turns people against it. Now, Paul could have just said, that's not true. But he goes a step further. He goes through Jewish purification rites. Not only that, he pays the cost for four other guys to do it too. Did Paul have to do that? No. But he's willing to give up his money, his time, anything. He's willing to become anything he needs to be. 
this, this whole idea, it kind of makes me think of bumper stickers, okay? Bumper stickers. Have you ever had this experience where you're, you're driving behind someone and you see a bumper sticker on the back of their car and you immediately know something about them? You have this thought, right? And the thought is, oh, they're one of those people, right? This is what they think. Now, don't get me wrong. I, there are a lot of funny bumper sti- stickers out there that probably just bring smiles to people. Here's one I really like. It's the T-Rex. If you're happy and you know it, clap your... Oh, T-Rex can't do it. His hands are too short. So there are good ones, for sure. But it seems to me that there are a lot of bumper stickers that exist primarily to draw lines between people. I am for this and against this, and I'm going to identify who's a part of my tribe and who is my enemy. Let's imagine for a moment that the members of the church in Corinth had bumper stickers, like we do today, and they stick them on their donkey or something, right? Um, So the the Corinthian church had a a problem with arguing over their leaders, so they might have something like this. Is that true, or did you hear it from Cephas? Or here's one. I wish you'd follow Paul this closely, right? (laughs) Or regarding the whole meat sacrifice to idols issue, here's one. Um, I didn't get to the top of the food chain to give up eating meat sacrifice to idols, right? (laughs) I mean, it's a little silly, but you get the point. These are, these are pretty close to bumper stickers we have today. Um, we basically have the same thing, bumper stickers that let people know you think they're an idiot if they voted differently, or that you would disapprove of someone's lifestyle, or how you feel about, um, yeah, whether people eat meat or not, or whether they like guns or not, or how you feel about those that disagree with you. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have opinions about what is good and healthy and that you shouldn't be able to share those. In fact, I'd, I'd say it's your right. It's your right to have opinions about what is good. But I also think that Paul would think long and hard before he put a bumper sticker on his donkey. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul, I think, would consider if it's core. Is this core to the gospel? Having this, will it help me win someone to Christ? And if not, he would give it up. Now, please know, I don't, I don't know of anyone here that has bumper stickers like that um, at all. And honestly, we should probably be more concerned about, like, metaphorical bumper stickers, you know? Like, are there attitudes, ideas, values we're carrying around and broadcasting that put a barrier between someone else and Jesus. Become all things. If we're these living monuments, what are we pointing people to? What are we reminding them of? Our unalienable rights, our our rights, the pursuit of life and liberty, they are these deep-seated cultural values that we have. We treasure them so deeply. I mean, historically, those are the things that we are willing to fight and kill people over. And those are the things that Paul names that he will shed, that he'll surrender, that he'll give up for the gospel. His freedom, liberty, he spends his life in prison for the gospel. And life, well, he gives that up too. Paul dies for the sake of the gospel, traditionally beheaded in Rome. Become all things. Um, I, I told you earlier about my son, how he likes to pretend 
I didn't tell you about my wife. You see, while my son loves to pretend to be heroes, sword fighting, wrestling, firing Nerf guns, and sword fighting again, and uh, that makes him sound really violent. I think he's just a four-year-old boy. Um, but all those things, none of that is really what my wife likes to do. Like, she doesn't get a huge thrill out of pretending to be the princess in trouble or battling the bad guy or getting whacked with a foam sword. But she gets up every day, and she ignores the bruises and scratches of battle from the day before. She picks up her sword and shield, and she becomes Princess Zelda or Owlette or whoever Gavin needs to play with him that day. See, my wife, she doesn't hesitate to lay aside what she wants to do to play with our son. Because, of course, our son is more important, more valuable, more precious to her than any of that. And ultimately, that is what Paul is telling us. The reason he does it all there in verse 23, it's for the sake of the gospel. It's more important, it's more valuable, more precious to him than his rights, than his freedom, than his life. And you can give up all things, become all things in pursuit of the one thing that really matters. Jesus is more than enough. Life, life is full in Jesus and forever. Liberty, Jesus gives us freedom from sin and death. The pursuit of of happiness, the joy found in Jesus transcends our circumstances. For the sake of the gospel, become all things. Those are the words of Paul to us today. Uh, Let's join together now as we worship our God. Let's all stand together.